Bibles tonight and go to Malachi. I want to teach tonight about honor. What are the fruits of it? What does it look like when we properly honor God? But at the same time, what does it look like when we dishonor God? And we will slowly make our way through these four chapters in this one session. And let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this evening to be able to look into the word. We pray that you minister to all of our hearts and help us to see clearly what you placed in the word regarding Malachi's ministry to the Israelite folks. Help us tonight to see clearly how we can honor you and revere you and walk with you in, in holiness and in the fear of the Lord. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Okay, so in Malachi, I want to read the first couple of verses here. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? For some context... If you're familiar with the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, then you know the children of Israel were in bondage in Babylon and they made their way back from that area of the Persian Empire. When they came back, they returned to rebuild the city, the wall and the temple. And when they got there, they started. But there were adversaries that created some problems for them. And so they kind of fell into this kind of lethargy where they didn't want to do the work they should have done. So God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to inspire them to do the work of God, to return to the work of God. This they did as these two prophets ministered the word of the Lord to them. But they died. And sometime later, after the death of those prophets, the people fell into that pattern again. So God raises up Malachi and he comes along to tell the people to continue the work. And he's telling them how God is unhappy with what they have done because they haven't honored him the right way. And Malachi verse one, verse one, it speaks of the burden of the word of the Lord. And I want you to understand that God's word is weighty in the sense that when it's laid upon your heart, you feel like you need to deliver it. You have to share it. You have to say it. You have to talk with someone. Now, Malachi's name means my messenger. And the word messenger is the exact same as the word angel. So a messenger of God is someone who delivers the word of the Lord. He doesn't deliver his own mind, his own opinion. He doesn't stand up and just say, I just want to make a statement and, and hope that it comes to pass. He is speaking directly from the unction of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Malachi did when he makes the st statement in uh, verse two there about I've loved you. And then you say, how have you loved us continually in this book? You'll see where God will make a statement and then he'll say your response has been rhetorical. So he'll say you've robbed me. But you say, how have we robbed you? So over and over again, the children of Israel are trying to tell the prophet of God that we haven't done anything wrong. And the Lord knows that they've done some things that are wrong. And now they're claiming that the Lord hasn't really loved them because the heavens have been closed and, and the vegetation hasn't prospered the way that they feel that it should. But I want you to understand 
that God's love for you and God's love for me doesn't change. And even though we don't always perceive what God is saying to us, even if we don't always understand what the king is saying to us, his love still is reaching out to us. Every time a man of God, a woman of God in the Old or New Testament goes to Israel or to the church and declares the word of God, that is the love of God reaching out to people and telling people to turn from their sins, to turn to God and receive blessing. Then he tells them about Esau and he says, Esau, I've loved, excuse me, Jacob, I've loved, but Esau, I've hated. Now, this is to say that God specifically chose Jacob's lineage through whom to bring his blessing. When it says Esau, I've hated, think of it in the sense of rejection, that he rejected Esau's line. And the reason I say that is because if if we just think of a hatred as a strong disdain, you can read the story of Esau and Jacob. They both went to their father after Esau was tricked out of his blessing. And you'll remember Jacob or Isaac, I should say, he laid his hands upon his son and blessed him and said, the fatness of the earth will be yours. But what ended up happening was Esau's descendants ended up in a whole lot of trouble because they ran contrary to the word of God and they started persecuting the Israelites. And in, in, in verses three through four and five, you can see where Edom, the descendants of Esau, because Edom is also another name for Esau. They ended up having a world that was turned upside down by the power of God. They were impoverished, impoverished and became desolate. And all of this was because the Edomites did not honor God. Now, God is using Esau and his descendants as an example to set the Israelites up to understand why they're in the condition they're in now. And this is why in verse six, it says a son honors his father, a servant, his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? So even God wants to be honored. Well, what is honor? Honors, it's, it's a preference. Number one, it obviously shows that there are statuses. So if someone is to be honored, they're to be preferred. They're to be respected. You don't have to like a particular person, but you do need to honor certain offices. You may not like the governor. You still should honor that office. You may not agree with the president. You should still honor the office. When I used to put a, a, a uniform on in the military, didn't matter whether or not I agreed with a general or a master gunnery sergeant. I had to honor the uniform and whatever commands were given. If I had any problems with it, didn't matter. I still had to honor them. And it's the same thing with the red, white and blue. If honor is given, then, of course, there's structure and there's order. So we first learn honor at home and kids learn it with their parents. They discover who it is that's in charge by the fact that mom and dad are the ones controlling everything that's taking place. And they learn to honor parents through little simple things. Mother's Day cards, writing down little statements, holidays, birthdays. We learn to honor one another by the way we talk to one another. So kids typically shouldn't disrespect their parents. They're taught that it's instilled in them. When there's a lack of honor in the home, there'll be a lack of honor in the community. 
There'll be a lack of honor in the classroom. You find a kid that shouts and cusses at their parents. How do you think they're going to act in the classroom or out in public? Don't do the exact same thing. There's no respect for for mom and dad. So on the natural side, honor is something that we have to have in order for society to function. Otherwise, you have a whole lot of anarchy. Now, there are some pastors who are um, very touchy about titles. And some ministers very touchy about titles. They, they want to be called pastor so-and-so. They want to be called apostle so-and-so. They want to be called evangelist so-and-so. And I've had people that have, have asked me about things like that. And I say, look, I've never had a problem in my life with anybody calling me Daryl or Brother Daryl. You, you say, why? I say, that's my mother named me. That's, that's not a problem at all. But what I have told parents and instructed them, teach your kids to call me pastor. See, teach your kids to call me pastor. There, there, there has to be honor in the house of God and in relationships. Once that is lost, then we end up in trouble. So here's what the king says in verse six. A son honors his father. So that should be natural. And then a servant, his master. I'm going to say an employee, his employer. So a good worker is, is really going to care about how they handle their job. You know what it is to dishonor a person on their job? If you know you're supposed to be there at 7 o'clock and then be there until 4.30 or so, you decide you want to get there at 7.05. And then you decide you want to leave at 3.00. That, that's dishonoring the person that hired you, especially if you said you would be there at a certain time. Talking about honor. If, if I'm meeting with people and they say to me, uh, Pastor, can we meet at two o'clock? And then repeatedly, whenever we're supposed to meet, they're never there on time. Do you think they're honoring me? They're not even honoring my time. So this is why when, when it comes to people's time, I do everything I can to practice time discipline. If we're supposed to start at 7, not 7.02, let's start at 7. If we're supposed to start service at a certain time, start at a certain time. Well, what if people are in the parking lot? They're just in the parking lot. But we have to honor people's time. If, if we don't, then what I'm saying is you're of no value to me. And if you're of no value to me, then I'll just act any way that I want and treat you any way that I want. So coming back to this, if a son honors his father and a servant his master, God says, where's my honor? Why aren't you treating me with some kind of respect? And then he continues. And, and here we go again with these rhetorical questions that the Lord says, you priests, you've despised my name. And then they say, well, how have we despised you? And then the Lord gives the answer. You've offered polluted things upon my altar. You've offered the blind for sacrifice. Isn't it evil? You offer the lame and the sick. Isn't it evil? The plan of God, when you go back into Leviticus and into Numbers, you'll see that when they're talking about the, the travels and the journeys of the children of Israel, they were to be camped in a certain way and, and, and sacrifices were to be brought to the tabernacle. They had to be sacrifices without defect, without flaw, without blemish. But the children of Israel came to this conclusion when Zechariah and Haggai had ceased to prophesy, God should just be happy with whatever we give him. I mean, after all, we're coming to the tabernacle and we come to the temple and, and he should just be happy with whatever we bring. And that's what they did. They brought animals that were crippled. 
They brought animals that were blind, unable to see. And the Lord says in verse eight here, offer it to your governor. Will he be pleased with you? I can answer that. No. No. So for more than more than two and a half years, I had this this special duty working with Marine security guards and working for the State Department. And I had some special attachments to two secretaries of state. One was Warren Christopher. The other was James Baker. And so wherever they would fly in the Middle East and myself and the other Marines would fly to a particular place and then be part of whatever kind of diplomatic security he had. But here was the here's the thing. He'd have a, a dinner or a meeting and there might be anywhere from 40 to 400 people in a meeting or in a banquet. And the Marines, we'd be at different doors and he has his own diplomatic security in different places close to him. Then all along the walls behind the secretary of state, you have all these aides just standing there just watching him. And if he ever just kind of looked like he was sitting in a chair and just kind of leaned back and kind of did like that. I mean, people came running. He may not have wanted anything but a cup of coffee, but I'm telling you, people came running and they were honoring that office. Now, what if he would have leaned back and did like this? And they said, what are you what are you waving your finger at me for? Somebody would have lost a job, you see. So with with Malachi, then he's saying, why would you treat me this way when you won't even treat a civil authoritarian or a civil authority in this manner? Offer it to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person? The answer is no. He wouldn't be happy. And every one of us in here knows what it is for someone to present something to us that does not quite meet the standards we expect. And when we don't uh, believe they meet the standards, we tend to let people know. And that's what God is doing. So notice then he says in verse 10, who is among you that would shut the doors for nothing. He said, you ought to close down this temple if you're going to disrespect me this way. Why should you have a right to call yourself a house of God? I have no pleasure in you. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. But then he begins to tell us that the Gentile are, are going to accept him. And he says, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, my name shall be great. So they polluted the table of God and the Lord is unhappy with what they have done. And you can see then at the end of verse uh, 14 that the Lord says, my name is dreadful among the heathen. He's saying the Gentile people have greater respect for me than you do. And they don't even have a covenant with me. But you're Jewish. You're, you're redeemed by me out of Egypt. Your seed has multiplied because of what I've done and you don't respect me. So what, what kind of respect do we have for God today? And, and we're told to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the king. How do you present yourself to God? Do you honor God by the way that you live and by your conduct? Do you honor God with your speech? Do you honor God with your behavior? Or are you the kind of person that just basically says, look, I'll do whatever I want and nobody can tell me anything. 
Well, let's never forget the Bible says you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed. You belong to God, lock, stock, and barrel. Well, how did they get into this predicament? Notice chapter 2, verse 1. The priests, or the preachers, the ministers, are to blame. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you if you will not hear and if you won't lay it to heart. So the Lord is so unhappy with them, he says at the end of verse 2, he says, I, I have cursed them already because they don't lay it to heart. Verse three, I'll corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feast. He said, I'm going to humiliate you because you won't act accordingly. And then he, he tells us that, that the preachers are the reason for this. Every ministry, every church in some shape, form, or fashion, is the product of someone's ministry. It's the product of some, someone's ministry. It's the product of someone's teaching or preaching. And if, if you have people who are in the pulpit who teach God's word, you can shape and form what people believe. But if you have priests who don't care about God's word, then you're going to have people who dishonor God. Now, this book is important. This book is important. And we have to believe this book is the power of God. And it, it continually reminds us of what the king wants to do for us. But if somebody gets up and says, this is just a book and it's filled with fairy tales and legends, and you're going to have a whole lot of people believe it's filled with that. And they're not going to serve God or even walk with God or have confidence in God. And this is what we're seeing today in our in our present uh, state with so many of our different fellowships. Yeah, we're, we're seeing the, the division and we're seeing the breakdown of independent churches and denominational churches because a preacher has done this. Yeah. In 2003, when the Episcopalians elected the first uh, lesbian bishop, the, the people uh, applauded, said it was wonderful. And then the bulk of the people in the denomination stepped right out of the movement and went to other churches and left. And if you look at what's taking place in the, the Methodist uh, churches right now, they're all having to ally themselves with the conservative group or with a, a liberal group. And everybody's got to make a choice in the next few weeks or a few months. Yeah. I had somebody here not too long ago was asking me, about some of this and they said you know the church that we attend down in Kansas they just decided to go up under a liberal branch and said the day they voted which was a Sunday said they lost 60 percent of the congregation how did it happen a preacher and the person told me they sat there in the meeting listened to what the preacher was saying and there were folks in the minority said we should not go in this direction we should hold to what the book says here's what the preacher said the preacher said the Bible is just a book filled with stories. That's what the preacher said. And and it has come across in such a way in rural America now that preachers have suddenly been teaching these things. And and you can see how it has spread throughout so many of these different churches. Yeah. One full gospel denomination here not too long ago, I think last year, maybe in the fall when they had their general assembly, they brought it on the debate floor to discuss the issue of homosexuality. 
Now, the only way in a general assembly it can get on the floor and become a topic of debate, somebody with influence and power has to permit it to get there. That's a preacher. See, that's a preacher. And, and the Lord says in, in this particular aspect, that is not good. You can see in verse seven, he said, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge that they should seek the law in his mouth. You should be able to find God's word coming from the mouth of a preacher. And a preacher should not compromise what God's word says, regardless of who's in front of him or her, poor or rich. Here's what the book says. And the book isn't going to change because you don't like what it says. It will say the same thing tomorrow morning. When, when the Lord put in his word in John chapter three, you must be born again. By the fourth century, the Bible was in Latin for most people in Western civilization. And, and by, by the 8th and ninth century, the average Christian couldn't even read the Bible. By medieval times, this is why they call it the Dark Ages, it was very little of any artistic value, and people didn't even really understand the book so well. But the priests were supposed to understand the Bible, but many of them didn't even understand the Bible. And when the Reformation came along... And people started looking at this and Tyndale, 100 years before that, began to translate the scriptures and put them in a language that people could even understand it. Even going back to John Wycliffe, then people realized, OK, this book does say the same thing it said in the first century. It says you must be born again. Now you have to be the member of a church, but you must be born again. So the priest's lips, the preachers, the ministers, the clergy people are supposed to teach the book. Not Reader's Digest, not popular opinion, not what's trendy or what's the latest fad. But it says here in verse 7, they shall seek the Lord his mouth, but he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But all of you are departed out of the way. See, they've gone in the wrong direction. Yeah. And so the, the Lord then goes on to say, as you can see in verses uh, 13 and 14, and this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying out, insomuch that he regarded not the offering any more. Do you realize emotion doesn't move God if your emotion is wrongly based? Doesn't move God at all. Now, think about this. this. This is what I mean by that. Our, our society today believes that we should make people feel good. And that's that's what they what they what they look for. They try to create an environment that's non-offensive, non-offensive, where no one will feel bad about themselves or bad about what they do. So every little kid that runs in a race has to get a ribbon if they complete the race. But then it's not enough just to give them a ribbon for completing the race. You've got to give them a ribbon for participating in the race, even if they don't complete it. If you have somebody who is good in school and gets good grades, kind of like the way my, my wife was with all them straight A's and all that kind of a thing, and, 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 and does well, then we don't want to praise that person because we don't want all the other students who didn't get the best grades kind of down here on my level. And, and we don't want me to feel bad, so we can't praise her lest I feel bad about her being praised. It's all based on emotions. We want people to feel good 
about themselves. So this trickles over into the culture. And, and now we have people that say things like this. Don't I have a right to be loved? And don't I have a right to love anybody that I want to love? Who are you to restrict my love and tell me I can't be in love with somebody of the same gender? Well, it's not me. It's the book. It's the book that says that. And, and you need to know that when God's love is manifested in the Bible, his love still is bounded by his character. That is to say, you can look at Psalm 97, I believe it is, where it says the Lord hates evil. So he doesn't love evil. He doesn't. He's not pleased with evil. He doesn't promote it, endorse it, or approve of it. But you have people that say love as long as we walk in love, God is love, so love is God. That's untrue. <laughs> That's untrue. Love is not God. God is love. That's a character trait of his. But think of it this way, and I've told you this before. King David had a whole lot of kids. But he had a son named Amnon that fell in love with his sister. And he fell so hard for his sister that he sexually assaulted her. And then after he assaulted his sister, he just discarded her like an old rag and said, get out of here and threw her out. And so she was so embarrassed and ashamed, she put on basically her clothing of guilt and sackcloth and ashes. And when her brother Absalom found out what his brother did, Absalom harbored hostility in his heart and waited to the right moment to try to kill his own brother. You know why? Because a brother shouldn't be messing with his sister. Love was misdirected. Love was wrongly used. And it doesn't matter if all of the European nations dispense with the incest laws. It'll still be a sin in the Bible. And when we come back to the book and we think about an issue like same sex marriage, it's a sin, not because we say it's a sin. It's a sin, not because we, we feel it's unnatural, although it is, as Paul says in Romans one, it's a sin because God says it's wrong. But what the psychologists and psychiatrists do is they say, look, they're weeping, they're crying, they're feeling bad. You can't withhold from them the very thing that they love. Oh, yes, you can. And you can come to church and, and say you love God and love somebody of the same gender and weep and cry and be in, and, and plead and say, oh, my goodness, I don't understand why people are opposed to me. God, help me. I, I, I love him. I love her and all of that. And God says you're covering the altar with your tears and he still won't regard your sacrifices. Because emotion doesn't change God's word. You can weep all day in your sins. And you, you can cry and say, oh, God, you, I'm just so I, I don't know why you made me like this. I, I'm just born to thieve. And, and I know I shouldn't be going into people's homes and, and, and robbing and, and stealing. But but you made me like this. So I have to rob and take Mike's truck from him. And I've got to go into somebody's yard and take their children's bicycles. God is not going to be pleased and he's not going to say he's happy just because you're crying about it. Doesn't happen that way. So then notice what the Lord says in verse 16. The Lord now is talking with them about their issues with the, the divorce. And it says the Lord, he hates the, the putting away. See, so they were just 
getting divorced as fast as they could and as often as they could. And the Lord wasn't pleased with that. He said, one covereth violence with his garment. God's not happy with violence. He's not. He doesn't. He doesn't enjoy it. And then he says, therefore, take heed to your spirit that you don't deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. And here's that question again. How have we wearied God? The Lord said, I'm tired of you talking. All you do is talk about what you're going to do. Talk about how you're going to change. Then you don't change. So the, the dishonoring of God has led to this bad behavior. They're in a rut now. And, and it's a terrible thing. So when you get to chapter three, we have scriptures that obviously apply to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because they're quoted in the New Testament. But I just want to deal with the principle. And in, and in verse one, he said, behold, I'll send my messenger. See, that's the same as the word Malachi. And he'll prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. So God is saying, because you're in this particular state and because your condition is so bad, I'm sending somebody that's going to prepare you for the time when I come to visit you. It'll be the day of the Lord, a time of wrath. God is saying, I'm going to come and judge you because of how you're living. Now, our nation and certainly churches today don't even have a concept of judgment and they don't even think God has wrath. And as many times as I've taught the book of Revelation in my travels, it still shocks people when I read the final two verses of Revelation chapter six that talks about that period being the day of the wrath of the lamb. It's like, oh my goodness, you mean Jesus actually gets angry? Well, he will be at that time. The meek and lowly lamb that died on the cross is going to be a warrior king when he returns and deals with a lot of these things. But the children of Israel in their sin, they needed a refiner to try to purify them because they had the kinds of sins and manifestation that were bad. You know, you can turn the television on and try to watch Andy Griffith. And then a good, good little wholesome show like that. And then on the commercials, you have drag queens. Yeah, trying to watch Andy Griffith have drag queens. And you, you, you look at, at our nation today and, and you see they, they gather kids in different parts of America so that they can see a drag show or have a transvestite dressed up as a, a, a woman dressed up as a man or a man dressed up as a woman at a local library reading stories to kids. Now, what always surprises me is the fact that there are parents that have their kids there. You know that? Because there's no way on this planet my mom and dad would have ever had me in an environment like that. But once we remove from our conscience the power of the word of God to restrain and curb behavior, we start dishonoring God. And the fruits of dishonoring God just continue to manifest. We do what we want. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. And sin continues to multiply. Yeah, think about that. So then, the Lord's going to return and you can see He's going to deal with these things that are in manifestation in Israel at this time. In verse number five, he says he'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers. See, black magic. 
witchcraft, against the adulterers, people breaking covenants outside of marriage, having physical relations with people they should not be with, false swearers, people making promises they have no intention of keeping, making rash vows, and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, so taking advantage over somebody when it comes to their pay, not looking after the one who's lost their spouse and mistreating the orphans. Yeah. So this is what Malachi was crying out against. And uh, as you can see, he had a lot to say about that. And he tells us in verse six that the Lord doesn't change. That's why the sons of Jacob aren't consumed. What is he saying? God's merciful. Have not been for the mercy of God, the grace of God. Now, if that's true, then I wonder sometimes, why is it that America is still standing? God's mercy. Why is it that other nations around the world that I'm sure are much worse than we are in their moral character? Why are they still here? Because they should have been consumed also. It was Jesus who said to the folks in Jerusalem, the folks over there in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, going to wonder why they were treated so bad when you good folks around here are still being allowed to do what you're doing. Well, when dishonor continues, it affects how we act spiritually in our interaction with God. It affects us in our relations with one another. And it also affects us in how we handle the resources that God gives to us. So look at what it says here in verse seven. From the days of your father, you have gone away from my ordinances and haven't kept them. Return to me, I'll return to you. But then you say, how shall we return? See, here's the, here's the question. Will a man rob God? And here's the answer. Every day he can get away with it. Yeah. As long as he can get away with it, will a man rob God? But you say, how have we robbed you? God answers in tithes and offerings. But you're cursed with a curse for you've robbed me, even the whole nation. This wasn't two or three families, folks. The whole country. Bring the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house and prove me or test me now, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the window of heaven, pour you out a blessing that you won't have room to receive it. I'll rebuke the devourer for your sake and he won't destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field. So, so working on this, this first part here, will a man rob God? Yes, he will, as long as he can get away with it. And then the Lord said, in tithes or in offerings. So tithing by way of percentage, how much is a tithe? 10%. 10%. So you've heard me, you've heard me teach this plenty of times. 10% of anything you earn, find, inherit, or is given to you, belongs to the king. 10%. Because in the, in the, in the, in the Old Testament, they had to get up, give of their produce, the crop that came in, what was sold, the inheritance that were transferred from one uh, person down to the other in the tribe. So I'm not talking about offerings now, and I'm working with what the law says. Just 10 percent under the law is what they had to give. That's what Moses taught the people. 
Well, there are plenty of people that will say, well, you know, tithing and giving like that today isn't uh, uh, according to Christianity because we're not under the Mosaic law. We're not under the Mosaic law. However, tithing didn't begin with the Mosaic law. Tithing began with Abraham and Abraham was about 400 years before Moses. <clears throat> okay. So Abraham, he goes and rescues his his nephew who was taken captive. And when he brings all of this stuff back, he goes to Melchizedek, who's the priest, whose name means king, king of righteousness. And he pays a tithe. That's the language, pays the tithe. And he gives that to Melchizedek. Now, you know, Abraham taught this to his son, Isaac, who taught it to Jacob, because when Jacob was running for his life, getting away from his brother, he prayed and said, God, if you help me in Mesopotamia and get me back here safely, I'll give you a 10 percent out of everything that comes to me. So that's long before Moses. Now, when when Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ, read the book of Hebrews. When Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the Bible says Levi was in his loins. And the Bible says we're children of Abraham. So as Christians there, we also pay tithes to our high priest. You don't pay tithes to me. I don't pay tithes to you. I pay tithes to my high priest, Jesus Christ, and I put my tithe right there with him. The only difference between me and you and the people of this era was they had a covenant that said give 10%. According to Hebrews, we have a better covenant. We have a better name, a better priesthood, a better house of God, a more excellent sacrifice. So we have every incentive on the planet to do much better than 10%. You see, much better tithes and offerings. So when you work on your your budget, always remember you're working with you should be working with 90 percent. That's where you start. That, that's the bottom. That's the baseline. You start with 90 percent is yours because that 10 percent belongs to the king. And I haven't even touched offerings yet. See, that's where you begin. Now, what are offerings for? Well, for us as Christians. The tithe isn't ours anyhow. That belongs to God. So that's his. But if people tithe and bring offerings, the excess and blessing is what makes it possible to help people that are in need, to take care of the priests, to look after the poor and the widows and people like that. And whenever I hear people start saying things like, well, you know, every time I go to church, it seems like all they do is talk about money. I'm thinking to myself, that that's a lie. That's a lie. Because because I know where, where I where I teach in pastor, that doesn't happen every week. But but it does come up when it comes up in the word of God, you see. And, and, and we teach it boldly and we teach it courageously. Most people who are saying that are saying that because they're stingy. They want to hold on to what they have. They don't have a problem when they smell a new car every other year. They don't have a problem when they're going on their trips they don't have a problem for this and that. But yet when it comes to God, they want to make sure that that God gets just barely the minimum. It's almost like when I get these phone calls and it's tax time or, or people are doing something with their business. And they say, now, now, pastor, should I tithe on? Um, should I tithe on the gross or should, you know, you know, they're going back and forth and I never give them an answer. 
Yeah, I never give them an answer because they, they, they're looking for a, a way to, to kind of wiggle out of what, what the king wants. When we give to God, God returns the blessing to us. If we honor him the right way, then we'll do this, you see. <clears throat> now, you may have had parents that said, okay, you graduated from high school now, and you've got a job, and you're at home, so now you're going to pay rent, or you're going to contribute something to the household income. And you may have said, well, I just don't think that's right, okay? Well, mom and dad thinks it's right because you're making money now, so you'll contribute to the household. You're eating food like everybody else. So my dad told me that when I got out of the military. My dad said to me, six weeks out of the Marine Corps, he said, what do you plan on doing uh, w with your life? I said, I'm going to preach the gospel. He said, that's fine. But he said, if you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to bring some money in this house as long as you're here. I said, well, okay, that's not a problem at all. I didn't have, have an issue with that. But, but the point was, my dad was letting me know, you are not just going to lay around here and eat, and we take care of you for the rest of your life. You're going, if you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to have to live of the gospel. See? So as a Christian then, when God blesses you, make sure you return to God the things that he has provided for you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, this is why the first day of the week we lay aside what we've stored up to give to God. Now let's move on here. He says the whole nation has robbed him. The Lord says, test him. You don't often have God saying something like that to you in the Bible where he says, test me. But this is one place where I can promise you, you step out in faith and start tithing. You're going to see that God is able to increase the amount of income streams that you have coming into your life. He can help you in a variety of different ways. He says, I'll rebuke the devourer for your sakes. What does that mean? He'll keep that little scavenger from coming and destroying certain things. You ought to praise God for the fact in 2022, you, you didn't have to replace your roof. For the times your car did not break down and God kept the devourer away. See, and then he says, won't destroy the fruits of your ground, nor cast the fruit uh, in, a, in an untimely way. So, you know, as well as I do, come wintertime, everything pretty much is dead. But if we get a lot of warm weather in a row, six, seven days in a row, these trees out here start budding. And if they bud and start casting forth their fruit and the leaves start appearing and then we get a freeze for two or three days, people have lost stuff for that season. God is saying he'll make sure that your fruit does not come forth in an untimely way. And then he says all the nations and surrounding people will call you blessed. So it's important then to know that we give to God because God is faithful to give to us. And remember, the Bible says God loves what kind of a giver? Cheerful giver. That, and and the, the reason around here and in our churches we don't pass a plate is because you, you, I've, I've been in so many churches where you take this little plate and it's only about that deep. And, and then you just pass that thing along and you just watch people. They're looking at people as they're looking at them. And then they, they drop that dollar bill in there. I mean, George Washington attends a lot of churches, folks. And they, they drop George in there and then they just pass it on. 
and then pass it on. Then, then every now and then you see some little kid who's unchurched and they're looking at that dish go by and they're reaching and grabbing stuff to put it in their pocket. Yeah. But, but, but in, in, in the gospels, Jesus sits in the temple, in the treasury, and he's watching how the people are giving. And they walk over to the chest and put their money in. And he said, didn't you see how the widow woman put her money in? And she gave more than everybody else. And so that is the reason we have never passed a hat or passed a plate. It is, is, is upon you. You're obliged to do it. I've never counted an offering. I've never made a deposit. I've never checked out what anybody is giving. But it is your responsibility to honor God in your heart and put your offering and tithes in and say, Lord, this is for you. See, And when you do it that way, then you can expect God to do wonderful things for you. And that, that's, a, that's a scriptural principle that I think is a blessing. That's one of the reasons we started giving to the little ones for their birthdays. It wasn't because we just want to give kids money. Because we want kids to receive something so that they can learn when they're young, I can give back to God. And there are plenty of families in the United States of America where the kids don't have anything to give. Mom and dad don't have a whole lot to give. But when when money is put into their hand and somebody teaches them, now you count that up. And then next week or later in the day, you go over and you put that in there and you say, thank you to God. And you start that as a habit. God will bless them later in life. He will. There's no doubt about it. Okay, so when we come to the the end here with chapter four, you'll notice that the Lord's continuing his teaching about what's going to happen when when he comes. And you can see in verse one, the behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven and all the proud and yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts. So God is still working on that whole aspect. He's going to deal with unrighteousness. But I just want to mention one final thought. And that's in verse four. It says, remember the law of Moses, my servant. Now, the law of Moses, have they been following it? God wouldn't have been saying all this other stuff here. And it's likely he, he would not have had to send Malachi. Malachi's ministry probably wouldn't even been born had they honored God's word. And if we do this by realizing as Christians now, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. But we do serve someone who's greater than Moses. And if we remember the words of Christ then we can expect the blessing of God to be upon us because it said in chapter two that my covenant was with them of life and peace. And that's God's covenant with us. Yeah. If, if we do what he's told us to do, then we have every right to expect that the hand of God will be upon us. And then that final verse where you can see, it's talking a little bit about John the Baptist He'll turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. So God is saying, I see change coming. And that's what he that's what he wants in all of our lives for us to live for him, with him and through him and let him have his way. If we honor him as we should, then we'll be an example. And people call us blessed. And no matter how difficult you may think the walk with God is, 
I can tell you it'd be a whole lot harder without him. Yeah, yeah you, you think about that. We're, we're all under the canopy of his blessing tonight because of our covenant with him. You, you remove that canopy. It'll be tough living out here. Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for placing this book in the Bible that speaks so clearly to all of us. We know that you have called us to live righteously before you. But we also know, Lord, in and of ourselves, it is impossible for us to do so. It takes you to live through us, oh God. Help us to put our members to death. Help us to mortify the members of the flesh so that your son can live through us. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, amen, amen. Isn't that fun?